The sermon text reading is from Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this day forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, City Church Eastside. Excuse me while I'll get this piece of paper. Uh, it really is a great thing to give thanks for the word of the Lord because he's given it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him better. It's a pretty cool thing. If we haven't met, I'm Matt Ruloff. I'm on staff here. Um, I get the privilege of starting off our Advent series. And for those of you who didn't grow up in the church or perhaps are new here, you might be asking, what is Advent? Well, it's a, it's a season of eager anticipation, looking forward to Christ's birth. And some of you might be thinking, uh, Christ already came. He was already here 2,000 years ago. And that's true. Um, and as Scott pointed out in the email today, if you get the insider email, there's an already but not yet, as theologians say, component of this. Christ has come, he brought his kingdom, and yet we're still awaiting his return to make all things new. So that's what Advent is. And in this series of Advent, we're focusing on the theme of light. Out of darkness comes great light. It's a beautiful thing, it's a beautiful image. So we see this theme of light throughout Scripture. There's a biblical theology of theme uh, of darkness and light. In Genesis 1, let there be light. Um, In Genesis 3, there was darkness, there was sin entered the world, and a promise for light, for a Savior. We also have, throughout the Old Testament, looking forward to Christ, you have this theology of waiting. When will the Savior come that was promised in Genesis 3? When will he come? With Noah, for example, you have to wait years and years for the flood. Then with Abraham, hey, you're going to have a son. You're going to be the father of many nations. But what does he have to do? He has to wait and wait and wait. And then when Israel goes to Egypt, they have to wait for 400 years until they're redeemed in the Exodus. And once they cross the Red Sea, what happens then? Do they go straight to the Promised Land? They have to wait in the wilderness. 40 years because of their unfaithfulness. 
Even right now in this context of Isaiah, they're waiting a Savior that's been promised. And Israel will have to keep on waiting and keep on hoping for light. When I think of light, think of darkness, uh, at staffing this past week, I was like, what, what do I think about when I think about darkness? Well, when I was a kid, I was scared of the dark. So I had a nightlight on. And that way, if you know the nightlight was on in my room, the bad guys wouldn't come. And they wouldn't do anything bad. It was a sense of security and a sense of hope. Um, just made me feel good about myself. But have you ever experienced like thick darkness? Like where you couldn't actually see like your hand in front of you? It's scary. It's confusing. Uh, and... Really, I, I want no part of that, so I'll keep my nightlight on. <laughs> but what does this have to do with today's passage? Well, as you, as you know, um, darkness isn't just confusion. It's also evil. It's also sin. And so where I want to go today, uh, three points, is we, we, need a, we have a need for light. We're going to go over that, discuss what that means. The second point is going to be how the light shines. And lastly, how the light leads. So first, there's a need for light. I'll actually go back to verse 1 and verse 2 right now. It says in the former, or, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. And I'll stop right there just to give a little context of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. He's in the 8th century. And he's a mouthpiece for the Lord. And he's calling Israel to faithfulness. And some prophecies are such where it's like, hey, if you're faithful, then this will happen. Or if you're unfaithful, this will happen. And then other prophecies are like, hey, this is for sure going to happen. There is going to be a Savior. There is going to be light. But the context right now is Israel has been unfaithful. And so the second part of verse 1, give it just a second to be on the screen. The former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon, land of Naphtali. These are tribes of Israel. And Assyria has taken over these tribes, um, the territories. And um, you can go to that next slide. In the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This tells us one thing about these two territories, that they're cities, territories of commerce. They're on the water, and so Assyria very strategically took them. So the context is Israel knows all about being oppressed right now. Verses 1 and 2 that we just read, there's a deep darkness, um, a great darkness. Let's go to verse 4, how it mentions the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. It's hard for us in the 21st century to think about, like, rod of the oppressor, what does that mean? But back then in the 8th century, Israelite would have known family members that have died, lost loved ones. Um, Verse 5. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle. Every garment rolled in blood. These are, this is like very strong language that would not only get their attention, but they could really identify with because this was part of their lives. So the context is there's a need for light. They've been oppressed by, by Assyria. But the ironic thing is it's not just that Assyria has oppressed them for nothing. It's because Israel has been unfaithful to God and worshipped idols. They've been unfaithful. And a picture, a perfect picture of this sin in a modern context is um, Lord of the Rings. I know it's kind of been trendy the past 10 or 15 years. 
in some Presbyterian circles to use Lord of the Rings as, you know, an illustration. But I say for good reason, because Tolkien is a genius. So here's what he says. This is actually, like, on the ring. Um, He says this, In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie, this is Middle Earth, those of you who have no context of Lord of the Rings, it's a made-up earth. In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. So Tolkien creates this, uh, even land, it's called Land of Shadows, Mordor, that's full of darkness, full of sin, full of evil. And this evil guy, Sauron, creates a ring out of greed and power to rule everyone else. To rule the dwarves and the elves and the men. And I'm seeing how funny this can be if you've never heard of Lord of the Rings and there's dwarves and elves. But it's, it's greedy uh, at its core. It's greediness at its core. And what is a great analogy of sin itself is that whoever has the ring actually becomes more selfish, actually wants power. And so there's this inward reality of that looks like sin that's like affecting whoever's wearing it. But it's not just on the inside that it affects. They become angry and greedy and selfish. It actually affects them outwardly. It's a burden to carry the ring. They need help carrying the ring. Um, if you look at this character named Smeagol, he's a hobbit. And what the ring does to him, it actually transform him, transforms him into this person you, you know as Gollum. He's totally uh, otherly, he's creaturely. He doesn't look like a hobbit should anymore because the ring has destroyed him. And friends, that is what sin does to us. That's why the ring is actually a great analogy for sin. Is that we go to it and we love certain sins, what they can offer us, but they actually destroy us. And so what Israel was doing is saying, like, oh, man, this idol, it can actually give me what I want. And God is saying, no, it can't. I'm the only one that can do that. They were in such darkness and they needed light. But think about the past two years, how there's been a lot of darkness. The pandemic and COVID. um, And that's exposed a lot of our hearts. I didn't realize how impatient I was until I can't get a package that's in back order that can't be here two days. You know, it's going to take five whole days to get here. Um, I realized how quick to anger I could be. Um, what is it for you? What, what has the pandemic in the past few years exposed of yourself that might be reminiscent of a ring or something that you hold on to that is actually life-sucking? This whole point, the, the first point is that we, we need light. Israel would have been hoping and longing to not be oppressed. And friends, we should be longing to kill sin, to not be oppressed by sin. This leads into our second point, though, how the light shines. There's really good news in this passage. So I want you not to dwell in the darkness of this passage, but actually the light. We'll go to uh, Matthew 4. And leaving Nazareth, this is Jesus, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. So that it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, this is the passage that we read, verses 1 and 2, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Gentiles, beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
And for those dwelling in the region, in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And I don't want you to miss verse 17. This is really, really important. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is baptized. He goes to the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted. He doesn't sin. And then this is actually how he begins his ministry, by fulfilling this prophecy in Isaiah and going to this territory and saying, I am the great light. There's been darkness for hundreds and hundreds of years. Even after Isaiah prophesied this, there were 700 plus years where Christ didn't come yet. The Israelites were waiting and hoping and longing for the light. But what does the light do once it is in the darkness? It's incredible. Well, there's no longer darkness there, but let's go to verses 3 and 4. This is awesome. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as the joy of the harvest. Now, we're going to spend just a quick minute here. Back then in agricultural society, you remember, this is the livelihood of uh, your family, of your friends, of your tribe, is the harvest. So if there's a drought, there could be death. There could be uh, illness. There could be children not making it. But if there's, there's harvest, there's great joy. So Isaiah uses this as an analogy that they would obviously get. In the next verse, uh, verse 4, uh, or actually the, the end of verse 3, they're glad when they divide the spoils. So this is war term terminology. Um, after you defeat the enemy and they're laying dead, you take their stuff, and that's, uh, that's the booty, that's the spoil. And so... What Israel was hoping for, this great light, you can easily see how they would want it to be a militant um, savior at first. The first part of the passage. But let's keep going. And uh, we'll get to verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, again, we, we read this part, every garment rolled in blood will be burned for fuel for the fire. Um what Jesus is going to do, ironically, is not come in with his staff and beat everyone down to cause peace. But somehow, these images of blood, this warrior, are going to be justified. But how do we make sense of that? Um, how do we take this light and this joy and this freedom from oppression and compare that with the Savior that comes as a child? Verse 6 tells us that a child is born, a son is given. And I want to take a few minutes to just look at the names real quick. There's been sermons just on this one or two verses in verses 6 and 7. But I want to spend just a minute, just a moment, going over these, these four names that are given. One is Wonderful, wonderful Counselor. We called Wonderful Counselor. Um, if you're like me, I'm thinking about like, okay, Scott, Mike, they're trained in counseling. Uh, I need to go to them for counseling. This is great. But back then, the, the word, the, the Hebrew word for counselor is actually someone who was very wise. Usually, you could think of someone who was giving advice to a king. And so, what do you need back then to put in the eyes of an 8th century Israelite? What, what are they reading when they say, wonderful counselor? Well, in that case, they would know, this counselor would know the topography of 
um, the region, if they're you know, facing the enemy, what, what their strengths, what their weaknesses are, what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses, how do we strategically engage them in battle, how do we take this land? You have to have all this knowledge and then make a move to go in to battle. So a wonderful counselor, you get a sense of this God, this mighty God who's going to be a counselor, is going to have a wealth of knowledge, but also the wisdom to know what to do. Mighty God. I don't want to just go over this um, without saying, Mighty God, I think when I first read over it, it was like, oh yeah, of course, he's the son. This is a prophecy, great. He's mighty God. But then the application came to me of, okay, if he's mighty God, that means I'm not mighty God. That means the ones reading this are not mighty God. That means my career is not mighty God. Or the way I preach or the way I, um, my reputation is not mighty God. The end of your singleness is not the mighty God. Your career path is not mighty God. This son, this child, this light into the darkness is mighty God. So another application of that is we are the ones who praise him. Not to praise ourselves or go after things that aren't mighty God. Everlasting Father, this isn't um, a switch on the Trinity just saying like, hey, the Son is now a Father somehow. Um, saying he's a, a protector, he's benevolent like a Father would be. And Prince of Peace, how does God actually, how does Jesus become the Prince of Peace? How can we say he's the Prince of Peace? And there's all this justice that needs to be accounted for. All this bloodshed that Israel is longing for justice. We see in verse 7, once he establishes his throne, he's upholding it with justice and righteousness. Friends, all the ways that we have messed up, all the ways that we have held on to our sin, even in the midst of Israel, they were unfaithful and they were in the darkness. And they, they couldn't climb out of this cave to get out of it. The light came to them. This is huge implications. God has come on his terms and not ours. We didn't have to get our stuff together for him to save us. That's such good news. But how does he deal with this justice and righteousness in a peaceful way? Comes as a son, and he lives peacefully. He lives his perfect life called active and passive obedience, as some theologians call it. For 30 years and three years of ministry, he's tempted, and yet he doesn't sin. And then he goes to the cross. And you can even picture it now, this theme of light and darkness. There's three hours on the cross where it's, everything is pitch black. And you can imagine just how somber it was. We'll go to Matthew uh, 27 right now. And it says this. This is when Jesus was on the cross. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. It's from 12 to 3. Um, the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lime sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. Jesus takes our sin and our shame and, un- and our unfaithfulness, and he takes it to the cross, where there's great darkness. 
and at great cost to himself. And the whole world seemingly stops after he dies. And even his disciples run to the upper room. They're like, I don't know what to do. It's dark. Until what? Sunday morning. There's great light. In the darkness of the tomb, Jesus isn't there. The good news of the gospel is that he's come, not only lived and died for us, but he's resurrected. So that's how the light shines on us. Have you ever actually found your cell phone or a, like a flashlight that you've been needing? You finally find it, you're like, yeah, like, yes! There's great joy. Now you can find whatever you're trying to find. A great light has shone on the Israelites, and what's depicted in this passage is great joy. We were in utter darkness. We couldn't do anything about it. Now what? Utter joy. This brings us to the last point, how the light leads us. So we've seen that Christ shines on us. We're in utter darkness without hope. But what now? So what? Well, verses 6 and 7, as I mentioned before, they talk about the increase of his government. And this isn't like a political government. This is of his rule. So at the time, Israel was divided in northern southern kingdom. And the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's not just Israel coming back as one. It's actually the Gentiles and everyone else joining in the fold of the people of God. That's where we are here today. And it doesn't stop. It keeps on increasing. So what does that mean for us? Well, in Psalm 119, uh, verse 105, it says this. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay, so we have Jesus. He's the light. We have scripture who's pointing to Jesus. He's the light. And then we have what Jesus actually says about light. You're probably familiar with salt and light. Let's go to that passage in Matthew 5 real quick. Just a reminder. This is 14 through 16. Jesus says this about his people. You are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So there's this assumption that once you have received the light, you, you were in darkness, but now you're in light. Now you've been saved through faith. In Jesus, he's done all the work, but now he's given us work to do. There's still darkness in the world. As Keith read for us earlier, the New Testament passage in Ephesians, we're supposed to be children of the light. And Paul explains that. He says, in parentheses, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Friends, are you pursuing things that are good and right and true? Are you seeing darkness and trying to bring light into dark places. The implication is of evangelism. His peace is going to keep on increasing. The light is going to keep on increasing, but we get to be the medium for that. We get to help spread the light, to spread the joy. That's amazing. We get to do that as a church. And how do we do it? From Psalm 119, by saying scripture is what leads to Christ. This is how we're grounded. This is a means of grace that we need. Remember this past year, um, I did this race in Texas. It was like an ultra marathon race called Last Runner Standing, where you do like a 4.1 mile loop 
every um, hour, which seems kind of weird. Like, oh, everyone can do that for a loop. But then you just keep on doing it until you can't. And so some of y'all are like, wow, you're in darkness. That's dumb. <laughs> um, and what happened, uh, you know, around 9 p.m., the runners who were still going, the organizers of the run, they were like, hey, you have to put on a headlamp. Like, you have to to keep going. And so the last lap, I was making it. I was walking. I was just trying not to, like, collapse. I was really just tired. And along the way, there's these markers that during the day, they're in pink. But during the night, they're actually, like, uh, not glow-in-the-dark, but reflective. Yeah, there's the word. And so you have your headlamp, and you can see these pink reflectors, and that's how you know to stay on the right path. Well, I actually missed a couple. And so instead of going around this corner, I went straight and was just looking down, and I looked up. And there were eyes all around me. And they were cows. <laughs> and I was like, that, I don't remember running past cows at all <laughs> during the day. So I turned around, retraced my steps, and then found these reflectors. And I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about, okay, well, we need to be in the light. We need markers. What does that mean to be on the right path? What does it mean to use Scripture as a guiding tool that not only looks to Christ, who is the light, but keeps us in the light. It means that we won't go off track. And it's encouraging because Jesus says, even in a not-so-obvious passage of a prophecy in the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament looks to him. The whole of Scripture is about Christ and how he has paved the way for salvation for us, how we can have communion with him now. So I want to end with this. What's an example of Christ going into the darkness? He healed a lot of people, set a lot of people free. Um, I want to go to Luke 18, see how this practically works out. What happens when Christ enters into the darkness? So I'll conclude here. It says, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. This guy knows nothing but darkness since birth. Hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth, he's passing by, he's coming. And he cried out, this is the blind man, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I know that's kind of a lengthy quote, and we're not in this passage per se, but what happens when Jesus enters into the darkness practically Kind of like this example of Lord of the Rings, there's an inward reality and there's an external reality. External would be he's blind. He hasn't been able to see. Inward reality is he needs Jesus. He needs to have faith in Jesus. So every sign in the gospel actually points to a deeper spiritual reality. So when Jesus heals this man and he's no longer blind, he says, your faith has made you well. What? Yes, having faith in Jesus Clinging on to the light, that actually brings him out of darkness. He's able to see, 
And the last verse, verse 43, again, we'll go over this one more time. is awesome. He recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. When you've been in deep darkness, when you've been in deep depression and anxiety, when nothing feels uh, right, when you've been in a cycle of sin that you just can't get out of, and then you have the light of Christ, you have people love you, it's life-changing. When you've been in darkness and then you've experienced light, it's life-changing. He glorifies God, and all around, around him, people glorify God. Friends, Jesus is the light, and he's come into our darkness. It's because of that that we can be in right relationship with him, have communion with him. We can walk in the light. If you're not doing, if you're not doing that now, if you're not following Jesus, doesn't that sound good? It might sound too good to be true. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would say explore it. It actually is so good, but it's also true. And friends that are Christians, would you walk with me? Would you, from this passage, look at your friends and neighbors and family maybe that aren't in the light and be encouraged to say, we have a lot of hope. We have joy because of what Jesus has done. Look at the personal things that I've been through. I've been in the darkness, yet there's been a light not of my own doing, but he came in the darkness. That's such good news. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for coming as a son, coming as a child into the darkness. I know Israelites were waiting for you for hundreds of years, and when you finally came, you were misunderstood. But Lord, we appreciate that you came and took our sin and shame to the cross. Now, we have your light. Lord, remind us of your love when we don't feel like we're in the light. Bring us back to you and your word, to yourself, the means of grace, taking communion of singing songs with other believers. Lord, would you remind us of how good you are and help us dwell in the light and help us bring light to the darkness here in the east side, the west side, south side, wherever we are of Atlanta. That would be a huge, huge blessing. We ask this in your name. Amen.